1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 34 is our text this morning. Please open your Bibles there or navigate on your device. You got a brand new Christmas device. You probably don't know how to get there, but that's all right. <laughs> Ask your neighbor. Or just pretend. That's what I do when I can't figure something out. I just pretend I'm okay. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. The topic... Paul gives a strong defense for our future resurrection from the dead, comparing the physical death of our body to being asleep. The title of our message, You Can Sleep When You're Dead. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do want to thank you for uh, bringing us this far in our service this morning. How sweet it is, Lord, to fellowship with the saints and to sing together and to lift our praises to you. And though there's a sense in which we're here to learn and to grow and to be ministered to, uh, we call this a service, Lord, because we're trying to uh, bring you uh, ministry, ministering to you, as it were, our love and, and, and uh, you know, our feeling for you and, and just the joy of our salvation. And we do it by ministering to one another as well, as we uh, do to the least of these, we do it to Christ. And so I pray, Lord, that we would remember that we're here for you. Uh, you're here for us, of course, but we are here for you. Take us through this text. Teach us many things, Lord, but especially encourage and bless us with a sense of your grace and mercy and your presence. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. amen. Try taking the China challenge. Challenge is to see how long you can quit using and refrain from purchasing anything that says made in China. There's a book, A Year Without Made in China, that chronicles one family's attempt to do just that. Here are a few quotes from an interview with its author. Our coffee maker broke and all ordinary drip coffee makers are made in China. So we ended up boiling water in a pan and just pouring it over filters into our coffee mugs, which is called a pour over. I don't know. <laughs> it must be Norwegian. But anyway, our blender also broke about mid-year and we couldn't repair it because the replacement blade was made in China. So that sat there gathering dust. Lamps, birthday candles, mouse traps, flip-flops, your Apple devices, your Samsung Galaxy, most laptop computers. In fact, most electronics are made in China or at least have components that are. For fun, look around your house for stuff made in China and think about what life would be like without it. The Apostle Paul issued a far more serious life without challenge to the believers in the church in Corinth. What would life be like if there were no resurrection from the dead? One of his answers, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. No worries, however. He'll go on to say Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So let's hear what else Paul has to say about the resurrection of Jesus and ours. I'll organize my comments around two questions. Number one, what would your life be like if there were no resurrection from the dead? And number two, what should your life be like since there is a resurrection from the dead? Let's take a look at no resurrection, verse 12 through 19. The Apostle Paul could hardly believe what he was hearing from the Corinthians about the resurrection from the dead. And so in verse 12, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is the gospel Paul preached and by which they were saved. 
Some among them were teaching that Jesus was raised, but his followers won't be. And so that's the problem. Uh, they're acknowledging that Jesus was raised, but there's no necessity, they say, for his followers to be raised. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ, uh, dead rather, then Christ is not risen. The Lord's resurrection and ours is a package deal. They cannot logically or theologically be separated. You cannot have one without the other. Maybe this illustration will help. Can you have a groom if there is no bride? Jesus is our heavenly groom, the Bible tells us, and we are his betrothed bride. As the apostle John wrote in 1 John 3, we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Since he rose from the dead in a glorified body, so must we, his bride, be raised from the dead in a glorified body in order to be like him. And so you can't have one without the other. Verse 14, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. Their claim that believers don't rise turned the gospel into a cruel lie and the apostles into liars. It's important we think about the consequences of the things we say about Jesus. Every few months or at least every year, there's something new that is available on the Christian scene, a new book or a new program, and it's usually a little bit different than you've ever heard before, uh, and it's how to this or how to that or how to be spiritual or whatever. And, and they're not all bad. I, I, you know, I think you're better off just reading your Bible and relying on the Holy Spirit, but uh, I will say this, figure out where they lead. What is, what is the end result of believing what this author is telling me? What would the world be like? What would my world be like? And is it biblical? Is it something that actually lines up with the Bible? Uh, because Paul is saying, yeah, if you want to say there's no resurrection, you've got real problems and you haven't thought about it yet. It's not just a matter of, uh, not just a, a tiny matter that can be trivialed with. I just made up a word, trivialed. Is that a word? It is now. You know how you read, I don't know, maybe not you, but in Bible commentary, sometimes they said, Paul made up a word because there was no word for this. And so that's what I just did under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> don't trivial with the word of God. Oh, man. Okay. I think we're at verse 16, uh, triveling through there now, but for if the dead do not rise, and Christ is not risen. It is a necessary effect of the gospel that believers will be resurrected just as was Jesus. You can't say we won't or that it doesn't matter. We will, it does. So Paul issued this challenge by asking them in the next three verses to consider the real world and the afterworld consequences of this position. And so first of all, in verse 17, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And so Paul expanded on what he had just said about their faith being empty. Not only would it have no content, faith in a dead savior reduces Christianity to nothing more than a man-made religion, like all the others whose main figure is dead and buried. The resurrection is one of the things that uh, sets Jesus apart from other religious leaders. You know, people are fond of saying that there were religions before 
uh, Christianity, and, and that's not true, actually. There were religions before Jesus was incarnate, before he was God in human flesh, but there, uh, all of this that we're reading about in the Bible, it all started at creation in the Garden of Eden, moving forward to the book of the Revelation. All religion came after and is man-made. And we're set apart because we serve a living savior. We can't visit his, well, you can visit what they think is the garden tomb, but guess what? It's empty. No one's in there because Jesus indeed has risen from the dead. Verse 18, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Asleep was the way Paul described believers at death. It has to do with your body, your physical body, your remains, or if you're cremated, they actually call it the cremains. Did you know that? I, I happen to know that because I, I hang around funerals a lot in my official capacity, and I don't want to sound stupid and triviled, and so I... <laughs> it's like your body is asleep on the earth because it's waiting to be utilized in the future resurrection. Your spirit is absent from your body and immediately consciously present with the Lord, but your body remains behind. If you're wondering how are the dead raised, check out verse 35. Paul answers in the verses following. He essentially says, how, how are the dead raised? And then he'll give you that. And we'll see that next week if uh, the Lord permits and we are able to study that part of this chapter. Uh, now, if there is no resurrection for believers at death, you perish. The immediate consequence for the Corinthians was that they would never see their deceased loved ones again. And that's something pretty huge. Anybody who's lost a loved one, obviously we, we're using that language, but if we're Christians, you, you don't lose people. You know where they are. You only lose something if you can't find it. But, uh, so if you've lost a Christian loved one, they're in heaven, absent from their body and present with the Lord. Uh, but imagine standing there you know, in the funeral home or at the, at the gravesite if you choose to do a burial and having absolutely no hope that you will ever see that person again, that they've just somehow perished and they're gone. Uh, it's, it would be terrible. And so Paul says, hey, have you thought about this? Have you really thought about what it's going to be like if there's no resurrection? I don't think you have. And then if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. Something wrong, terribly wrong with this life. In Christ, there is hope of redemption for humanity and for all of creation. A glorious restoration is promised. If Jesus didn't rise, and if we don't, all such future hope is lost, and we are to be pitied because we are living for a false hope. I mean, as Christians, we pity people who are involved in cults, right? Because they're living for a false salvation. And so Paul says that would be us because there would be no salvation. If we don't rise, Christ doesn't rise. It goes hand in hand. In Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, Mr. Spock's brother, Cybok, wants to use a ship to reach the mythical planet Shakari. It's supposedly the place where creation began. The planet lies behind a seemingly impenetrable barrier near the center of the galaxy. He thinks he has found God beyond the Great Barrier. God turns out to be a cosmic criminal has deceived Cybok because he needs a starship to escape, leading to the classic line by Captain Kirk, why does God need a starship? Obviously, he doesn't. It was all a lie. And that's the problem. If you mess around with the resurrection at all, the entirety of the Bible becomes a lie. It's one of the non-negotiable truths. The resurrection is legit. God's not dead. 
Now, as we move on to verse 20 through 34, what should your life be like since there is a resurrection from the dead? Who remembers Charles Atlas? Anybody remember Charles Atlas? A couple of, of, of us older folks. That wasn't his real name. I was surprised and happy to learn that he was born Angelo Siciliano. <laughs> Portuguese. No, I'm sorry. He was a, he's an Italian-American bodybuilder. And he developed an exercise program which spawned a landmark advertising campaign featuring his name and likeness. It has been described as one of the longest lasting, most memorable campaigns of all time. I used to see him in the back of comic books and there was a little, little com a picture of him like this, you know, well, actually not like that. I mean, he actually looked good, but, uh, <laughs> and a little comic that was drawn out. And in the ads, a skinny kid is at the beach with his girlfriend and a bully kicks sand in his face. And he's obviously humiliated and his girl calls him little boy. But after following the Charles Atlas routine, he bulks up, finds the bully, and punches him in the face. Yeah. It was a simpler time. That's how men solved their difficulties back then. And his girlfriend exclaimed, you're a real man after all. I just quit going to the beach. That was my solution. So, want to be a real Christian? Then you have to realize the spiritual difference made by Jesus' resurrection, the power of his resurrection, and your future resurrection. So let's look at verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits are the initial harvest. They represented and promised a greater harvest to come. The resurrection of Jesus is like that in that he represented and promised the future physical resurrection of those who have fallen asleep. He died and rose, and he ascended into heaven. All who die in Christ will rise and be taken to heaven. Verse 21, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Adam represented every future human being when he and Eve decided of their own free will to disobey God in the Garden of Eden. God told them the consequences would be death, and death is what followed. Really? Why could they not just obey the one command? I was thinking about this, trying to illustrate it, and because uh, they could eat all kinds of uh, luscious fruit and vegetables, but just the one tree, which I believe was a fig tree. I don't even like figs anyway, and so, but it wouldn't have been a big problem. But uh, I was thinking about it. a lot of people here, and uh, it's kind of a weird illustration, but it's what came into my trivialed mind. And uh, but a lot of people here have gallbladder problems. And maybe they do all over the world, but it, it seems like a nexus for gallbladder problems and. Every other day I'm hearing about somebody in the church getting their gallbladder sucked out, you know, and stuff. But leading up to getting your gallbladder sucked out, you start to have problems with your gallbladder. You eat certain things and, and you know, they, they don't set well with you. And so I know a person who uh, canola oil is what does it for him. This isn't made with canola oil, is it? No, no, it's not. And then I look out there and I think, okay, so if canola oil bothers me, there's vegetable oil, olive oil, palm oil, sunflower seed oil, sesame seed oil, avocado oil, coconut oil. Come on, grab an oil. There should be whole oil stores. Amazon probably has 20 oils for free, uh, you know, every, on their prime or something. But instead, it's like, 
I got to have canola oil. Uh, I, I, maybe it won't hurt me. The doctor said if I drink it, it'll kill me, but I'm gonna, I got to have it. That's what my tacos taste best in and stuff. You know, so, I mean, so Adam and Eve, it's like, yeah, just don't do it. Then you think, well, what was that all about anyway? God created man in his own image, okay? He is a free will being. He has free will. We have free will. You can't have love without free will. And you can't have free will without a real choice. And so God took the risk and he created Adam and Eve with free will to love him or to reject him and they rejected him. And so now fast forward and people are always putting the blame on God because they don't remember the back that far. But here's, here's an agricultural illustration I think that you'll like. Another kind of a crazy illustration, but it works for me. So Adam and Eve, they were, they were farmers. They would have had fun here in the Central Valley. Well, no, they tended the ground and they had all kinds of fruit and vegetable. And then all of a sudden they sinned and now they had weeds and thorns and weevils and things like that. And they, they threw creation into a tizzy. So maybe you're living in the Central Valley, right? Here's another thing that seems to be prominent in our valley. And, and by the way, I'm pro-ag. I don't want anybody to think that I'm against agriculture. Yay, ag, go ag. My job depends on agriculture. <laughs> There's a lot of people here that come down with neurological diseases. And some of the doctors will tell you, the ag people won't say this, but the doctors say, yeah, that's because you have been exposed to chemicals known to the state of California to cause terrible things. <laughs> Not everybody that's exposed to, but some people do. So God, how is that God's problem? You see what I'm saying? That's happened because Adam decided he wanted canola oil instead of sesame seed oil. <laughs> the only thing, seriously, the only thing you could ever accuse God of is taking his time to solve everything because it has been solved in the coming of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And we read the end, we know how it'll be totally resolved. In the meantime, it really is Adam's fault. We really do inherit sin. The world around us is the way it is, not because of God, but in spite of God. And so this idea, you know, why God, this is the world we live in. If you're susceptible to disease and you live in a place where it's a magnet for that, you're gonna, you're gonna be in trouble. Valley fever, who's heard of valley fever around here? Adam, blame Adam. There was no valley fever in the Garden of Eden, but there is in this bread basket of the world. But the Lord's coming. He's done everything he can, hasn't he? He's come and he's died and he rose from the dead and he's coming again. And so that's a good kind of overview uh, of what's happening in the world with Adam and Eve. In Adam, all die. Four words that summarize the human condition. Disease, disaster, and death, that's because in Adam all die. Racism, that's because in Adam all die. Violence and war, in Adam all die. If you don't think that's fair even now, Jesus also can represent the entire human race in his decision to obey God. And when you identify with him, you go from life, or from death rather, to life. So yeah, Adam, you know, you think, hey, that's not fair, but, but it is. He was a super intelligent, superhuman kind of a guy you and I would have made the choice to. But now, as Adam represented us, so now Jesus represents us. And we are saved by his choice to obey the Father and to go to the cross and die and rise on the third day. 
The Corinthians were not thinking back far enough. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and ours is part of the greater total plan of God revealed in Eden to redeem and to restore all things. Believers have been dying, obviously, since the beginning of time, so why are their remains and their cremains still interred? Verse 23, each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ that is coming. The word order is important, let you know that the resurrection of the human race will occur in stages, not all at once. Uh, this is a uh, fallacy in some theologies. They talk about the general resurrection at the coming of the Lord, and that what they mean is that everybody from all of time is raised to stand before the Lord, but that's not what the Bible teaches. There is a resurrection of the righteous, of believers, and there is a resurrection of the unrighteous, non-believers. The resurrection of the righteous believers happens in stages, beginning with Jesus. He was the first to be raised, never to die again. For sure, he had raised others during his ministry, but they died again. Lazarus came out of the tomb only to go back into a tomb at some point. He died a physical death. You might remember, too, that in the Gospel of Matthew, it mentions that many saints rose from the dead when Jesus did. Albert Barnes comments and says, the graves were opened at his death by the earthquake and the bodies came out, thus establishing the truth of our Lord's resurrection in particular and of the resurrection of the body in general by many witnesses. The next stage in the resurrection of saints are those who are Christ at his coming. What coming? Well, we'll see at the end of this chapter that Paul meant the coming of Jesus to rapture the church, to remove living believers off this planet prior to the great tribulation. In that stage, the resurrection of the Lord, uh, or rather the resurrection, the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. When it happens, the spirits of believers who have died between the resurrection of Jesus and the rapture will be reunited with their bodies. We'll see at the end of chapter 15 that their bodies will be raised incorruptible and glorious. And then at the same time, living believers will be raptured, which means will be transformed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. You realize there's a whole generation of believers that won't ever die because they're alive when Jesus comes to resurrect the dead. And that we'll talk more about the resurrection, but that they had a question of it. This is one of the reasons they questioned the resurrection. They say, well, what if you were shipwrecked and you were eaten by sharks? No body, no resurrection. What if you're burned to death? What if you're hacked in pieces by the Roman army? What if, what if, what if? God can find a molecule, I think. Besides, it's not the same body. You're not gonna come out a zombie. Uh, heaven, <laughs> you know. Even a fast-walking zombie, it's just not, you know, it's not like that. There's some connection to your physical body, but it's, it's, it's like, Paul's gonna describe it like a seed put in the ground. Maybe some of you are really good at identifying seeds, but I'm not. I put it in the ground, hopefully some comes up, and I go, ah, ah, magnolia tree, you know, or whatever and stuff. And uh, uh, your body or what's left of it, whether it's remains or cremains, wherever it is, digested by a shark or whatever, uh, it's, uh, God's gonna be able to pull things together and give you a new glorified resurrection body and unite your spirit with it. The end comes, verse 24. The end Paul was talking about leaps forward past the seven-year great tribulation and to the end of the 1,000-year kingdom of Jesus on the earth that follows the tribulation. 
Every believer from every age will now have been raised and be in their glorified bodies fit for eternity. The resurrection of the righteous will be over. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The Old Testament over and over promised Israel the kingdom of God on earth. It promises the descendants of Abraham, the physical ethnic descendants of Abraham, a physical real kingdom on the earth ruled over by their Messiah and by King David. It'll last for a thousand years. We call it the millennium or the millennial kingdom. And here we see that Jesus must reign over it. It is a real earthly kingdom. It ends with one final Satan-led rebellion against the Lord. He wins, the Lord does rather, easily. It marks the completion of Jesus' mission to redeem mankind and creation, setting the stage for the creation of a new heaven and new earth. Before the restoration of creation, there's another final somber resurrection. All non-believers from throughout time will be raised to be judged all at once. Rejectors of God's grace, they are cast alive into the lake of fire in their glorified bodies for an eternity of conscious torment. And so that's the layout of the resurrection from the dead. I'd encourage you to read the 20th chapter of the Revelation. It's only 15 verses, but it fully explains these literal future events. So verse 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. Death is a tyrant exercising despotic power of the human race. He's going to be destroyed. Once the wicked dead are raised, no one will ever die again because no one will ever sin again on into eternity. He has put all things under his feet. When he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. What? Well, Paul gives us commentary on this quote from the Psalms. It is insightful into the cooperation between God the Father and God the Son with regard to plan of redeeming creation and mankind. We are Trinitarian. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Not three gods, but one God expressed in three persons, all equal. But for the plan of salvation, God the Father sends God the Son who subordinates himself in order to die for the sins of the world. And then after his resurrection, God the Son sends God the Holy Spirit who subordinates himself to the Son. And so they're equal, but they, are, they have roles to play in the Godhead as it turns out when it comes to salvation. And here, all that Paul is really saying is that everything is going to turn out right. Uh, There's going to be a reconciliation, a restoration, and a redemption. God and his creation will be as originally intended without sin or the possibility of sin. Now, the next few verses, 29 through 32, are a series of questions that show the inconsistency of preaching. There is no resurrection from the dead. Verse 29, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? It would have been so easy to just leave this out, but it's there. Causes a lot of problems. The Mormons, for instance, perform proxy baptisms for dead people, thinking it gives them opportunity to enter into the kingdom. No one has a totally satisfactory answer to what exactly was going on in Corinth. I came across this following helpful commentary. 
An examination of the sources shows that this referred to baptism of persons who had just died, not proxy baptisms for them. There's no evidence of proxy baptisms for the dead in any early church, nor is this done in modern mainstream Christianity, whether Oriental Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, or any Protestant churches. Now, the truth is the Corinthians may have been doing proxy baptisms. They did a lot of weird things in Corinth. If they were, Paul's lack of condemnation of it here doesn't mean that he approved of it. He was just noting that it was going on. Why didn't Paul take time to discuss baptism? See, that's, a, that's our question. Okay, Paul, I want to know right now why you, you didn't take time to do that. Well, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, he didn't have to because the Corinthians already knew his teaching on water baptism. He'd been with them teaching 18 months. There's also a lost letter to the Corinthians that may have had some reference to this practice. Remember that even though this is the inspired word of God, this was a letter to the church at Corinth. Have you ever read somebody else's mail and not understood a reference because you don't know the people involved or you don't know the events that are being talked about? And you have to say, what, what does Gene mean here by he ate a pound of spaghetti? I mean, what does that mean? You know, that kind of a thing. And so you just don't know. It's explainable. It seems odd to you, but it's explainable. I remember there was a uh, family here in the church, a young couple, they were getting married, military uh, fella, and um, the fiancé was writing back to her parents and talking about him and his debt uh, detachment, right, you guys? Well, they thought it was his debt, D-E-B-T, uh, and they didn't want their daughter marrying somebody who was in debt. Uh, and so they were wondering how much money they needed to get out of, you know, if the creditors were coming or whatever and stuff. And so somebody explained to them the difference. And, and so I guess they thought he was not only in debt, but he's stupid because he couldn't spell. But anyway, <laughs> so, you know, it, that's perhaps what's going on here. But as far as it concerns us, when we think, well, Paul, why didn't you explain it? We have the whole New Testament that does explain baptism. And, and we know that there is no such thing as proxy baptism because if you take all of the teaching on water baptism into account, you find that it follows conversion, never precedes it. As a ritual, it doesn't save the living or the deceased. And as far as deceased individuals, the Bible says it's appointed unto men once to die and after that judgment. And so we do have this explained to us. We just don't know why Paul made this reference, except he makes an incredible point from it if you really disbelieved in the resurrection of believers, you wouldn't bother to baptize them as a sort of last rites or second chance. This is like an insurance thing. So, oh, we don't believe, uh, you know, Gene's going to rise from the dead, but he's taken his last breath, so let's baptize him just in case. And so Paul's saying, yeah, that's inconsistent. And one thing Paul will not let you be is inconsistent. He holds you to the fire in terms of what you believe. Why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? What an understatement about the hazards of being an itinerant apostle. Beaten, stoned, robbed, shipwrecked, jailed. That's all in a day's work. Why do it? In another place, Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So while he was alive, he was going to serve the Lord no matter what it did to him, looking forward to the day he died so that he would be with the Lord. I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Paul could boast about them because he had preached the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and they were saved, and they knew this. So he wasn't a boastful man. He wasn't calling attention to himself, but he could say, hey, 
Remember, I preached the gospel, including the resurrection of, you, of Jesus and of you, and you got saved. A new power came into your life. Paul says, I die daily. Paul would agree with Captain Barbosa, who said, dying is the day worth living for. That's actually a pretty remarkable quote. Dying is the day worth living for. Do we agree? Verse 32, if in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. An angry mob compared to wild beasts had tried to tear Paul apart in Ephesus. What motivated him to keep going on in the face of daily dangers? He says it's the fact that he would rise and stand before the Lord. Otherwise, you might as well live as if life were all about physical pleasure. In fact, denying a physical resurrection is a step in that direction because it's saying that only the spirit matters, not the body. And once you make that disconnect, then you start doing whatever you want with your body. And this was coming to them from Greek philosophy and Greek wisdom. They were trying to mix what the Greeks believed about the afterlife with what Paul had taught them so that they could, in their mind, have the best of both worlds. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. This is a great standalone verse for raising your kids. It should be the first verse that they learn uh, because there's always going to be evil influences around your children, and they need to know that there's a reason why you won't let them play with their friend who kills animals, uh, you know, those kinds of things. But to the Corinthians, Paul was saying, you are adopting a Greek philosophy Adding that to the gospel can only corrupt uh, where you're headed. Awake to righteousness, don't sin, for some of them uh, do not have the knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. Drift away from thinking about the eternal, and you lose a sense of urgency to grow in righteousness or holiness, we might say, and you find yourself more and more unconcerned about the lost, those who do not have the knowledge of God. And if that's our great commission, we shouldn't be moving away from it. So, how are we more like Charles Atlas? I know you've been wondering. Well, just reflect on how different our lives are knowing we will be raptured or resurrected. Think of the power that is released. Reflecting back on verse 17, you're no longer in your sins. You're forgiven. And beyond that, you have power to say no to sin, to defeat sin. If you were saved later in life, you know that you could never defeat some of the sins that were in your life, some of the habits, some of the addictions, whatever you want to call them. They just kept coming back and and, uh, ruling over you like a tyrant. And then you came to Christ. And all of a sudden, with no effort at all, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you were set free, unchained, unshackled from those things. Maybe you've returned to them. That's not the Lord's fault. You need to come out of them with that same power. But nevertheless, what a great thing that was. Reflecting back on verse 18, we have assurance we will be reunited with our deceased, believing loved ones. This life isn't all that we have. There's a glorious afterlife with a great reunion and just millions upon millions upon millions of saints worshiping the Lord. Reflecting back on verse 23, we have the joyful urgency of knowing Jesus could return for his church at any moment. What a comfort it is to know that he could come back. You should never be discouraged that he didn't come back five minutes ago or he doesn't come back five minutes from now. It doesn't change that sense of urgency. God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. The only reason he's waiting is is for people to get saved because once he pulls the trigger on this thing, it's all gonna go pretty fast through the tribulation and the millennium. 
and there's no turning back. And so we have a joyful urgency that he's coming. Reflecting back on verses 24 through 28, we know the end of the story. It all works out. There'll be a restored creation with no sin or death or enemies to ever cause it to fall. Reflecting back on verses 33 through 30, or 30 through 33, no matter what happens in the world or in your world, you can live for Jesus knowing that the worst thing that could happen to you is that you die, but to die is gain. Reflecting back on verse 34, we have a commission to share the simple gospel. God has partnered with us and he's empowered us to tell people about him so that they too can be saved. What an amazing thing it is to be able to tell a person, think about it, that they can be forgiven their sins and have a new nature from God. Think about if you've ever gone to counseling, secular counseling or psychotherapy or whatever you wanna call it. Can you imagine your counselor saying, you know what, Gene? You need the forgiveness of sins. That's why you feel guilty and that's why you do all these weird things. And you're giving into your old nature. You need to be born again. You need a new nature and Jesus Christ can give you that. That's the kind of world we're talking about when you talk about Christianity. It's not a Charles Atlas thing, it's a Jesus Christ thing. It's him indwelling you by the power of the Holy Spirit. We of all men are not the most pitiable, but in fact, the most hopeful. Let's pray.